Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5. If you had your worship guides with you, you would see that the title for this morning's message is Grace, Grace, and More Grace. Uh, because I don't know about you, but over this past week, I have um, I've seen a lot of gloating. Um, I have seen a lot of grieving, a lot of griping. Um, I'm Baptist, so I have to make them rhyme. Uh, but I, I haven't really seen much grace. And we are a people in particular in need of grace. So 2 Kings chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read to you just two verses from Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus speaking. It says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll read the first 14 verses. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the, the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet had spoken to you. Will you not do it? 
Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us because we need to hear from you. Your word brings life. Other words bring death, but yours bring life into us. So come and speak and breathe in our midst. May my words fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore, but Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the story begins with a description of two people, uh, two people who could not be any more different from one another. First, we're introduced to Naaman. Um, he was the general of the, uh, the most dominant power of the day, um, Assyria. He had led Assyria to many victories. He had conquered countless people. He had also led many successful raids into Israel itself. And because of all of these things, he was a man held in high regard both by his people and by his king. And he was also considered one of Israel's fiercest enemies. Uh, this was a man, when you think of him, uh, he is a man who just exudes power. A man used to having his own way both at home and abroad. Uh, now, what's startling about all of this is we are given this one little detail that the source of all of this power and success has actually been the Lord. The Lord himself has been giving him these victories, even victories over Israel. The Lord has been at work in his life. Even though by all indications, Naaman doesn't seem to have the slightest clue that it's the Lord at work in his life. I'm sure that he thinks, just like all of us think, that our success, all of our honors, everything that we have, we have in this life, we've earned. We've achieved it. It's all been a result of hard work and effort. But here we are given a little glimpse behind the curtain, and we, are, we see that the Lord has actually been behind it all. God has been gracious to him, whether he knows it or not. And so one of the things we learn right here at the start of this story is that, that God uses people, whether they are aware of it or not, even violent and evil men. There is no person, there is no situation that is outside of God's control. Uh, the other important detail that we learn about Naaman, besides that he's a general and he's powerful, is that he also had leprosy. Uh, leprosy was just a terrible disease. Um, it's likely only in the beginning stages here because Naaman can still go to work, but he knows that the clock is ticking. This will kill him. And he realizes that despite all of his achievements, all of his wealth, all of his hard-earned respect and power, despite all of those things, he was going to die. And not just die. This wasn't going to be dying an honorable death. He was going to die unclean. He was going to die as a social outcast. 
He would have been cast outside the city. He would have had to live in a leper camp. And think of it, this is a person who used to enjoy all the high-class parties. He was the one who used to receive all the honors, go to all the banquets, and now he's a social outcast. His power and his fame would not be able to save him, and this had to be a devastating blow. Uh, But just as the Lord had been at work in his success, we see that the Lord was also at work in his sickness. Because working in his house, we see that there's this little servant girl, and she stands in stark contrast to Naaman. She has absolutely no power, no status. Um, she She is what you think is the the very definition of someone who has been oppressed. Uh, She's actually been, she was taken from one of Israel's, uh, one of the times that Israel had been raided by, by Naaman's party himself. Naaman being the enemy commanding general who had gone and had taken her. I mean, just, just think of that. Think how horrible this girl's life was. She'd been violently ripped away from her home. And now she was having to serve the very commander who had likely slaughtered her parents. The very commander who had kidnapped her. I can't even imagine the the trauma that this girl had experienced. Now you would expect upon hearing those two things, those two people being described, you would expect that when this little girl hears that her master has received this this, uh, mortal sickness, her reaction would be, yes, justice. I hope he rots in hell for all he has done to me and my family. I mean, you'd you'd expect that. There's not a person in here who would actually criticize her if that had been her response. You'd get it. After all, that's how oppressed people respond when their oppressors finally receive justice. Yes, finally getting what you deserve. But what we see here in this little girl is grace. Such a remarkable grace. And I I believe this is one of the reasons we have this story in our Bible. She actually has compassion for her master. And she doesn't want to see him suffer. Before we go any further, let me ask you the question. How does that make you feel? How How does that rub you? I mean, if at work, um, a, uh, a coworker steals one of your brilliant ideas, what do you pray for? Do you pray that they would get a promotion because of it? Do you pray that they would get a pay raise? Or do you pray that the person gets fired? Do you ask for justice? If you were a parent, um, and someone says something critical about your parenting techniques. I know that this rarely ever happens. But, uh, you know, they might just say, oh, you decide to, um, to spank your child. Hmm, how barbaric. Uh, we just use positive reinforcement and give out lollipops constantly. How many of you secretly rejoice when their child throws a tantrum? 
or, or, or not so secretly. Anybody here ever have that glorious feeling of someone coming up right behind you as you're driving down the highway, they tailgate you, their brights are on, you can hardly see anything. After a few miles, they finally just zip right past you and then they get pulled over. And you just kind of slow down. Because you're just really admiring justice, not vengeance at this point, isn't it? <laughs> you slow down, you lower your window, you, you wave with a few less fingers and... All because you're, you're really passionate about justice has nothing to do about vengeance, does it? No, we, we delight in those things because the hard truth is our hearts are just as evil as theirs. It's the reason we gloat. It's the reason we love instant karma. When we are wrong, we delight at the downfall of those who have wronged against us. And it's not because we are rejoicing in justice. We rejoice because our hearts are evil. Uh, however, if we understand that we have been saved by grace, that ultimately everything we are, every good thing we are has come to us as a gift from the Lord, and that we have never done anything to deserve his good gifts, then we can never never exalt ourselves over another, another. We can never somehow think that we are better, we are more deserving. Once grace has been poured into our lives, we must in return then pour out this grace into other people's lives. God's grace spills out from us to others. And here we see such grace in this little girl. I mean, far from delighting in the suffering of, of her master, she hurts for him. And she tells him that she knows of a prophet who could heal him. Can I give just a little aside to the parents here? Uh, this is a little girl who, who lost her parents at a, a way too early age. And I'm sure that these parents, they wanted to watch her grow up. They wanted to, uh, to be there for all of the big and the small events in her life, and they never got the chance to do that. They also never got the chance to give her any inheritance. But what we actually see here is she did bring something from her parents into this pagan land. She did have an inheritance, and it was a spiritual one. Her parents had taught her about the Lord. She knew three very important things. She knew that there was a God who spoke through his prophets. She knew that there was a God who heals people. And she knew that she was express love for even her enemies. She knew those three things. And can I tell you, that is an incredible spiritual inheritance. As a parent, I cannot think of anything I would rather hand down to my children. Who cares about all of the stuff that we will someday hand down? It's the spiritual heritage that matters. Here we see those things had been instilled in her at an early age. It's all she has left. Now when Naaman here, he hears 
about this little girl's words. He, he hears about the prophet. He, he immediately goes to his king and he asks permission to go to this man. And the king says, go. And he sends with him this huge entourage and a boatload of money in order to pay for the healing. And so he goes off to Israel. He finds Elisha. He, he knocks on the door and he gets the first of what will be several blows to his pride. Elisha, Elisha, he hears the knocking. He knows it's Naaman there at the door. And Elisha won't even get off the couch. He just lays there. Sends a servant. Sends a servant to the door. And the servant probably says something like, Hey, um, I'm sorry, I know you've come an awful long way to see Elisha. He's really busy at the moment. Um, but he did give me a message for you. He said, after such a long journey, you need to go and take a bath in the Jordan. I mean, it certainly seems here that Elisha is just blowing him off. Uh, not only does he not come to the door, but then the command that he gives is just utterly ridiculous. This is the equivalent of going to the hospital with cancer. And instead of a doctor coming to see you, the doctor sends an assistant to tell you to go home and take two aspirin. I mean, if, if that were to happen to you, what would your response be? Uh, no, excuse me, can I talk to an actual doctor? Can I get some real medicine here? Don't treat me like that. I mean, Naaman here, he's understandably furious. I mean, he'd expected to come out and do whatever prophets do. You could tell he's not really sure what a prophet does. He just says, I thought he'd come out and like wave his hands around, wave his hands and, you know, call on the Lord and I'd be cured. Instead, he tells me to go bathe in a dirty river. Bathing in the Jordan wouldn't cure him of poison ivy, let alone leprosy. I've been to the Jordan River and uh, it is so dirty that if you put your feet in it, you can no longer see your feet. You are more likely to get a disease from bathing in that river than healed. And so Naaman is furious. Although it's a simple thing he's been asked, in his pride, he won't do it. He, he walks away. Uh, and, and this is what we really have going on here. This is what we really see when we were to look at the life of Naaman. Naaman is a guy who thought he could earn his salvation, just like he had earned everything else in his life, or thought he had earned everything else in his life. He wanted to get his salvation just like he got his status. Work for it. He was ready to pay a tremendous price for it. I mean, he had cartloads of money, he had all the, the latest designer fashion ready to give away for it. Um, he's prepared to do some great deed for it. I mean, he understands how things like this works. I mean, normally you're supposed to do some great task to show your worth, somehow that you know, you're worthy of being healed because all the legends work that way. You know, like Hercules expected to capture the Cretan bull kill the nine-headed uh, Hydra. Dorothy's supposed to go and bring back the, the broom of the wicked witch of the West. I mean, you got to go do something big. Show your worth. Show you're worthy. But to go and bathe in the 
River Jordan? Well, anybody could do that. Absolutely anyone. I mean, to go and bathe in the Jordan was to accept that he could no longer look down on anybody. It was to acknowledge that all of his honor, all of his wealth, all of his power were worthless before God. That he could bring nothing to the table. God was going to heal him to save him just by his pure grace. Uh, You have heard me say this um, several times, and I will say it again, but in regards to your salvation, the only thing that you bring to the table is your sin and the need to be forgiven. In regards to Naaman's healing, the only thing he brought to the table was his leprosy and his need to be rid of it. You see, before God, no one stands on a pedestal over another. Everyone is the same. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is saved by grace. If you've been going to church your whole life, you have your entire life walked little old ladies across the street. Uh, You have done every good deed you can imagine, all those things. You know what? You are saved by grace. If you're a prostitute, if you're the drug dealer who's never stepped foot in a church, You were saved by grace. Do you see how humbling that is? I mean, Christian, we can never look down on another person. You can never think of yourself as superior over someone else, as somehow being more deserving of God's love. You can't go around bashing people on social media, to be blunt. That has no place among the Christian. You should be the most gracious people on earth because you alone understand that you have been saved by sheer grace. No one stands on a pedestal before God. Have you ever noticed, like, we keep, we keep hearing the same theme over and over in Scripture, and it's that it's not the good that get into heaven and the bad that go to hell. It's the humble who get in, and it's the proud who are excluded. Well, what is Naaman going to do? Well, thankfully, he's got servants who, who run after him, and they convince him, like, hey, just... I mean, forget about trying to do some great thing. Just humble yourself and take the bath in the dirty river. And he does so. And we read in verse 14 that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was in a very real sense born again. Both his heart and his skin were now cleansed. Have you ever done that? Not jump in the Jordan River, but have you ever humbled yourself before God and acknowledged that there's absolutely nothing you can do to save you from your sins? If you haven't, then like Naaman, your time is ticking. And at the end, all of your money, all of your power, all of your education, all of your reputation, All the things that you have held on to so much in this life, they will be useless to you in the end. 
But what Jesus is offering you today is a new life if you will simply ask for it. He will wash you of your sins. He will give you a new life. Now, most of the sermons that I have ever heard on this usually stop here. I mean, it's a good landing point, i got to confess. Um, but what happens next is just fascinating. Um, so if, if I could have five more minutes, can I have five minutes? I can't see your face. I'm assuming all of you are saying, yes, go for it, take ten. I'll take five. All right, so go back to 2 Kings. Let's read the rest of that. Beginning in verse 15. Then Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. So Naaman has just been healed. He's exploding with joy. He's converted. And then it dawns on him that his life is about to get really complicated and hard. Uh, he's returning to a job um, and, and to a culture that involves pagan worship. Uh, in other words, he's going to have to return to Wall Street where everyone worships money. And he's going to be expected to as well. He's going to have to return back to his neighborhood where everyone worships beauty or everyone worships sports. He's that photographer or that baker that's being asked to go and to support something that now he sees is against his faith. Or that physician being asked to do a procedure or to prescribe medicine that he now believes is both harmful and wrong. In other words, if he goes back, his life is about to get really complicated and hard. And so what should he do in this moment? I mean, should he, should he not go back? Should he stay with Elisha? Just That would be a whole lot easier. Or does he go back into all of that mess and try to be salt and light? He asks Elisha about it, and Elisha says, go in peace or shalom. He doesn't say, you crazy? You can't go back there. Think of what, I mean, think of all the situations you're going to be put in. I mean, no, you can't stay here. Elisha doesn't say that. He says, go in peace. And by saying go in peace, he's saying, take that peace with you. Take that peace with you back into that pagan culture. He is telling Naaman to go back into a nearly impossible situation and to bring the peace of God there. 
Now, in doing so, we see Naaman, he lays down some parameters. Absolutely. He says, I'm not going to sacrifice to any pagan god. I won't do it. There's some things he will absolutely not do. He will not make sacrifices to the idols of his culture. But there's other areas, gray areas, like helping his king kneel in worship to a pagan god. He's going to have to do. This is what being the salt of the earth looks like. We also talk about this often as a church, but the main role of being the salt of the earth, being salt, is not that we're the spice of life. The main role of salt in this day is a preservative. Salt was utterly worthless unless it was worked into something that would rot without it. And when salt was worked into something that would rot without it, it acted as a preservative. Naaman was going back to this pagan culture to try and preserve it. He's being salt and light here. Now to help Naaman do this, he makes this strange request. He says, can I bring back two mule loads of dirt? Um, I mean, what the heck is that all about? Uh, I, I have seen people, you know, go to the Holy Land and they, uh, for one, they all get rebaptized in the Jordan River. Talk to me if you've done that. Um, the Lord will forgive you. <laughs> but other people, you know, they come back and they've got to bring the special holy oil, you know, because it's from the Holy Land. Um, they got to bring back maybe some of the Jordan River. I don't know what you would do with that, but you, you bring back these little trinkets and stuff like that. But I've never seen anybody bring back just dirt. And he wants to bring back a lot of dirt from the Holy Land back home. But the reason he is doing so is this is his gospel track. This is how he's going to get to share the gospel with his people because the people where he came from, they associate their gods with the earth, with the land. And by him coming in now and, and bringing land from another place, he is saying that he is bringing his God, this new God, back into that pagan land. And so now when the people look at him, they're going to know two things. They're going to know that Naaman has been healed of his leprosy, and it was a God outside of their land, this other God they did not know who had done it. And so now what we see actually is Naaman is becoming an instrument of God's grace. He's actually becoming just like that little servant girl. I mean, think of it. Now he's being thrown into an impossibly hard situation. Now what can he communicate? Well, there is a God, and he's a God who heals. And he knows that it's his job to now share it with the people. Share the good news of this with everyone, however he can possibly do it. It's not a bad message for the church. Pray with me. Lord, your people are often put in some very precarious positions, situations in which it's really hard to navigate as to what's right and what's wrong. I pray you would give us extraordinary wisdom. Help us to find creative ways to share your gospel. Tell us where we need to take a stand. I pray that everyone around us would know that we worship a different God. And he is a God who heals. And he is a God who 
pours out grace even on our enemies. May that message be loud and clear to a dark and dying world. And God, we confess that we we deserve nothing but your wrath, but you have shown us tremendous grace. Thank you for the ways that you have forgiven us, for the way you have given us new life. And I pray that with this new life, we would live it in complete and total devotion to you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.